Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. This is episode number 45 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about all things Stargate. I'm looking forward to this main discussion today. We're talking about just war on Stargate. I think this is going to be an interesting discussion and maybe one of our most controversial topics that we've had in the last year of the podcast. Is there such a thing? As an interesting podcast? As a just war. We'll find out. But first, we've got some Stargate news, some GateWorld site features, and a preview of our upcoming very special interview with actress Terrell Rothery. So here we go. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for June 3rd, 2009. Warehouse 13, premiering on the Sci-Fi Channel in July, will feature a special guest appearance by Stargate Atlantis' leading man, Joe Flanagan. The show follows two Secret Service agents who find themselves abruptly transferred to a massive top-secret storage facility in windswept South Dakota which houses every strange artifact, mysterious relic, fantastical object, and supernatural souvenir ever collected by the government. Sounds like the place where the Ark was stored in Indiana Jones. Area 51 instead in the show. It's Warehouse 13, and it's in South Dakota instead of New Mexico. So have you heard anything about Warehouse 13? Just the press that Sci-Fi has been putting out. It looks like, you know, they're pushing the, the X-Files angle. It's kind of X-Files. It, it sounds kind of quirky like Eureka. So I wonder if it's maybe X-Files meets Eureka. Trisha Helfer is going to be guest starring. Joe Morton. Love Joe Morton. Sci-Fi released a press release this last week uh, with all these guest stars. So they've got Joe from Atlantis and a bunch of people from Battlestar. Trisha and also Michael Hogan, who is uh, ah, yes. one of our favorites. Colonel Ty. And Mark Shepard, who is Romo Lampkin. And then Joe's character. Joe's going to play a character by the name of Jeff Weaver, a handsome and wealthy man whose charm captures Micah's interest, but he finds himself under Pete and Micah's scrutiny when a sculpture in which he bid vanishes in an impossible heist. Of course, none of us know who Micah is yet, but Mm. we'll find out. So what do you think? You're going to watch Warehouse 13 this summer? I don't watch any television beyond a very select uh, number yeah, of right. shows. I don't have Sci-Fi Channel anymore. I always forget because we're, I mean, Sci-Fi and and television bring us together, so I always forget that you don't actually watch television. <laughs> if it appears on Hulu, I'll uh, check it out. Oh yeah, I think it will. In our weekly Stargate Universe news, if you're following the episode guide, we learned this last week that Fire, which was going to be the first regular episode after the three-part premiere uh, has now been split into a two-parter so the title fire is off the list and instead it's darkness and light i thought this was uh, going to be later on in the season we thought so uh consulting producer joe malazzi uh, announced these two episode titles uh, without telling us that it was fire uh, and it's just been pieced together by by readers specifically uh one of gateworld readers pg-15 is uh, has pieced this together this last week that fire is now darkness and light. These are not two separate episodes that are in the second half of the season. So we'll get the three-parter to start the show, and then we'll get a two-parter right away, which is crazy. But it shows you that they're they're doing an arc-based show, which I think is cool. Fire is now darkness and light. That's part one and part two, written by Brad Wright, directed by Peter Deloise, 
And so, interestingly enough, I think that this means that the mid-season two-parter was slotted for episodes 10 and 11, is now slotted for 11 and 12. So I'm curious to see if they run through 11 and then take the mid-season break in between the two-parter, or if they stop at episode 10, and we get both part one and part two when the show comes back next year. Nah, I bet there, it'll be more of a dramatic pull to go ahead and give us uh, an extra episode on this side of the fence mm-hmm. and then uh, build up collective interest for the show and then return later on. Surely. Could be wrong. Been wrong before. Gateworld Features. Our interview with Ryan Robbins is now on the website. Ryan played Layden Radim on Stargate Atlantis in a number of episodes, so that interview is now up on the website. It's nice and long, video interview, audio interview as well, uh, so you can check that out. I watched a little piece of, I think it was Coup d'etat. I think I watched the end of Coup d'etat the other day with Ryan, and he's so beardy. He is very beardy. He doesn't have that beard, and I do not recognize him with it. He's a very good character actor. I mean... He was the first face ever in Battlestar Galactica, the, the miniseries, and, uh, I mean, you just can't tell. He's very flexible in terms of what he can do. Well, last week on the Friday Five, we looked at Ronan's five greatest hand-to-hand combat scenes, Ronan's best fights. And number five is, in my humble opinion, Ronan versus Tyre, the rematch from the season five episode, Broken Ties. Uh, this is the sword fight that they did. And there are lots of other awesome fights that Ronan did throughout the show, and that's the subject of last week's Friday Five, our top five countdown each and every week this week. Uh, We're going to be looking at great Jack and Daniel moments. So check it out, pick your favorite five, and let's see if they match up. Screen Capture Gallery for uh, this past Monday now includes 99 images from the Stargate SG-1 Complete Series box set, 100th episode featurette, over 1,200 images for the 200th episode featurette, and 500 images for Behind the Mythology of Stargate SG-1. These latter two features aired on the Sci-Fi channel. The 200th episode featurette was a Sci-Fi Inside documentary featuring Gary Jones, and the Behind the Mythology of Stargate SG-1 documentary was narrated by Christopher Judge and Michael Shanks. That went up on the site this past Monday, June the 1st. Expect on June the 8th screen captures for Stargate SG-1 True Science, which was originally a uh, British documentary. Ah, cool. The profile on Joseph Malazzi and Paul Mully, uh, in which GateWorld uh, played a part in bringing that to life. And screen captures from the documentary made for the failed video game Stargate SG-1 The Alliance. We should also mention before the news section goes away... If you're a fan of Lou Diamond Phillips, we haven't seen him on Stargate yet, but he is an official Stargate actor because he appears in Universe as a recurring character, Colonel Telford. Uh, He is currently, surprise, surprise, in a reality show that just kicked off this week on NBC. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. You can vote for him. And not that I would ever support reality television because I, I hate it with the fiery passion of a thousand burning suns but lou is is on the show and so check it out mondays on nbc and vote for him and i hope he does really well 
Our interview with Terrell Rothery is going to be heading your way in the next few days. Terrell, of course, played Dr. Janet Frazier on Stargate SG-1 for seven seasons and came back for an appearance in Season 9's Ripple Effect, I believe. And we had about five minutes to talk with Terrell. We got shoehorned in with her between uh, photo op sessions. But in that five minutes, it was surreal. And mm-hmm. I am very, very proud of this interview. And uh, I'm looking forward to it getting out. She just looks great. One of the best video interviews in terms of presentation. She looked terrific. And it was, yeah, it was extraordinarily memorable for me. May oh. I have your permission real quick to ask about Don? Yes. Okay. You were always known as a pair on stage. What is it like not to have, be able to do the cons with him anymore? Uh, um... He's always there, though, isn't he? Oh, sorry. Yeah, he's yeah. he's always there. It's um, it's pretty sad. I mean, he's missed by everybody. You know. We all love him. And yes, he is always there. He will always be there. So, but look to the future. Absolutely. Still, you have a great baby. You're I do. Now, I do. And uh, things are well. Everything's in its right place. It is. Are you happy? Ecstatic. Ecstatically happy. Yeah. Good. I just wish he would have met her. Ah, yeah. Yeah. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic today is just war on Stargate. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that this is a a topic that was born out of at least one, probably several previous conversations we had. We talked about uh, the question, are replicators alive, a few months ago. We're not talking about block replicators. We're talking about the human form. The Asurans. The answer to that question, if you think that replicators are alive, then you have to start answering questions like, do replicators have rights? Are they sentient? And one of the things that I want to talk about here, is there any such thing as a replicator who is a non-combatant, is maybe not part of their leader Oberoth's grand scheme to attack Atlantis and destroy everything we hold dear? This leads us to the question, if, if we can ask the question, are replicators alive? Do they have rights? Well, then what about our other enemies? The wraith are very animalistic. Are they sentient? Do they have rights? How do we go about uh, fighting a war with them? Uh, and then what about the Gould? So let's talk about those three. I think what it really boils down to for me is we have a right to defend ourselves. We can't let someone come in, take our children, rape us, take what they want, and just go. Yep. At some point, you have to give the schoolyard bully a bloody nose but then there's the issue of a of a preemptive strike and that's really where it's kind of fuzzy for me personally and where i really want to sink my teeth in mm-hmm. what i want to say right up front here is that we're talking about just war theory and this is a field of ethics and a field of philosophy that is that is an ongoing topic this is an ongoing discussion there are lots of different sides uh to, to the sort of stuff that we're going to talk about. And yeah, I mean, okay, we're nerds. We're, we're having a good time talking about you know philosophy and ethics as it relates to our favorite TV show. At the end of the day, Stargate, like so many other shows, is telling entertaining stories about 
good and evil and uh, human condition human condition so we want it to be entertaining we don't want to take the show too seriously take it more seriously than it takes itself but still i think this is some some interesting stuff to talk about and we're not going out of our way to say hmm let's pick a topic that will offend as many of our audience members as possible these shows are very action-packed and all the characters carry guns and this is something that's very valid to talk about Mm -hmm. in my opinion so that this um, this show has a ton of shoot 'em up elements. Oh yeah, it's it's military based. When you listen to the producers, I mean, they'll say we had to do that because it was cool and we wanted to see some cool special effects. We wanted to see some explosions. So I think this is pretty valid. Oh yeah, science fiction asks hard questions. It asks questions about the human condition. And why we do the things we do. Terminator 4 came out in theaters uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, in preparation for that, I was I was running through the original movies. And uh, it gets to the mm-hmm. scene in Terminator 2 where they're at, uh, I think, a gas station or something. And uh, John Connor looks at a couple of, of boys who are fighting and says, we're not going to make it, are we? The T-800 says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. I find that very poignant. Whether you believe that or not, I um, it stops me every time. I've always wondered, or I should say I've wondered in, in the last few years, uh, with everything that's going on in the real world with discussions about the military and the use of military force and the war in Iraq and and uh, opinions, especially internationally, that, that the United States has acted somewhat uh, unilaterally in its in its military decisions. I wonder what effect that has on the viewing of a show like Stargate SG-1. Which is very military based, and it's it's you know it's the U.S. military figures are heroes going out there and fighting bad guys. Mm-hmm. Though it's science fiction, and though it's kind of supposed to be a mirror, it definitely has its real life roots, which makes it kind. It can be kind of a minefield. I can I can mm-hmm. I can imagine the uh, the writing room, you know, uh, of Stargate. You know, every once in a while, every once in a great while, a topic coming up and saying, "Whoa, we can't go there," even though this is cable. Uh, we really shouldn't go there. We will be yeah, we, we risk offending a large number of our foreign audience who's outside of North America, outside of the United States. Yeah, and it's, the writing staff is largely Canadian. Uh, yep. Obviously, they have a tremendous amount of, of respect for the U.S. military and, and a great working relationship with the Air Force, but there are neighbors to the north. But still getting back to the the... The fiction of it, you know, the, I, I know there are a lot of people who, out there who think that nothing good can come of war. I am not one of those people. And looking at the show it, where you see ghouls and you see replicators and you see Wraith, these are races that want to kill us mm. because of our way of life. Or the Ori, because we will not worship their gods. They want to destroy us. If they could, they would. They've tried. We can't just let them do it. (laughs) We have to protect ourselves. Now, the question is, uh, by whatever means, is that valid? Yeah, the means is a We have an obligation to our enemies. I think the pacifist argument is is definitely out there, and I would love to hear from a pacifist who is a fan of Stargate, uh, who can can maybe call in and make a, a concise argument. I don't know, what do you do when you've got Gould Mothership's about to blast you to smithereens or you've got wraith who want to subject all of humanity to slavery and eat you what is the pacifist argument there 
I'd be really interested to hear that. Let's lay some groundwork before we get into the, the stargate specific topics, and uh, we want to give just a really quick framework for this, this ethical discussion of just war theory. And there are two principles in just war theory that I think are particularly germane to this conversation. Uh, and forgive my Latin pronunciation, my Latin is rusty in the sense that I haven't had it yet. So jus ad bellum is, uh, in ethical theory, it's a set of criteria that are consulted before engaging in a war. And here I'm reading straight from Wikipedia, and go and look at the show notes for this episode, and you'll see links to Wikipedia for these these two entries. So uh, jus ad bellum is, is what are the ethical standards, the criteria that you must meet before you can go to war, before you can, can declare war and exert violence over someone else. Uh, and generally, uh, over the course of history, this people have, have boiled this down to a short list of things like just cause. First of all, you ha- your cause has to be just. It can't be, we want their land. That's, that's mm-hmm. not a valid reason for going to war and killing other human beings, or in the case of Stargate, other, other sentient species. No conquering, then. No conquering, uh, if you want your, your war to be a just war, uh, if, if there is such a thing. We're assuming for the, for the case of this discussion that there is. Uh, number two, proper authority. Do you have the right to go and do that. So if, if you have a just cause of, well, uh, our nation is being invaded from outside. The Huns are at the gates. The Vandals are at the gates. So we need to go out there and fight them. But the proper authority would be, would be in the case of the U.S., our government gets to declare war. I don't get to go out and declare war on Canada <laughs> because they're, they're storming, Canada. storming the northern gates. So proper authority has to be the one to declare war. Number three is right intention. Your intention in fighting has to, this goes along with just cause, I think. Uh, you you can't say that we're fighting for one thing when in fact we're fighting for something yeah. else, like oil. Um, number four, you have to have a reasonable hope for success. This, this one gets sticky and there's a lot of debate over this point. Uh, if you are hopelessly outnumbered and you have no chance of success whatsoever, some just war theorists would say you need to just surrender. You're, you are not justified in shedding blood if you have no hope for success. Uh, I find that one interesting. And then proportionality is the final point for juice ad bellum. Proportionality, I think, basically speaks to the issue of uh, the, the good that you are hoping to achieve in going to war and shedding blood. Is, the, is it proportional to the amount of death and the amount mm-hmm. of violence? that's going to be exerted. Bombing a, a nation to smithereens so that you can move your borderline five miles in is, is disproportionate. Be all my sins is, is the big kahuna, but first strike, uh, in thinking about it for this show, mm-hmm. first strike on Stargate Atlanta, season three, it's the finale. We find out that the Asurans, the replicators, the Pegasus replicators, are building ships. Well, that's, that's kind of the assumption is that they're building it to attack Earth. All they're we building weapons recon, of war. Recon photos of their ships being built. Right, and we decide to execute a surgical strike 
to take out the primary targets being the ships and a few secondary targets as well. Which I think is kind of funny because if you destroy a weapon of war, they're only just going to build another one anyway. Even when I watch this episode for the first time, I'm thinking to myself, why are we doing this? We're, we're poking the bear. Mm-hmm. And these are replicators, for crying out loud. They can assemble stuff in no time at all. If we destroy their ships, and certainly a portion of their population as well, A, they're only going to build more ships, and B, we've given them greater cause than ever to come after us. Which is exactly what happens in that episode. The The replicators send a super powerful satellite weapon to Atlantis to try and destroy Atlantis because... Atlantis struck first. I mean, they're an immediate threat to replicator existence. These these guys have been living peacefully, as far as we know, not really interfering with other species in the Pegasus galaxy for 10,000 years. And later on in uh, the series, early season four, actually the very next couple of episodes, we uh, visit Asuras while we're there to get energy for Atlantis. We find that we can activate the replicator's original base code. Mm. and original programming, which was to go after the Wraith. So we decide to make the Replicators a weapon against Mm -hmm. another enemy. And it gets out of control over the course of the first half of Season 4 to the point where the only solution is to wipe out the race of machines. Yeah, we've gotten to the point by the middle of Season 4 where... Uh, we have activated their base code, and there's an unforeseen consequence in that the replicators have decided that the best way to attack the Wraith is to destroy entire human populations that they have. Their feeding their, grounds. Their food source. So that's that's bad for us. We don't like that. Uh, the, the catch is that they've also altered their base code in such a way that we can't shut them off again. Mm-hmm. Rodney opened the door and allowed them to adjust their own code. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem. Mm-hmm. He did something similar in the middle of season three and ended up getting, in my opinion, getting the last surviving group of ancients killed because they expected the replicators to behave in a certain way. And because McKay had adjusted them, they were unprepared and got wiped out. Mm, Helia and, and Atlantis. Helia, and yeah, exactly. They were the, in the, the return. The, the Tria, they were all gone. So you're right, I think that, that Season 3's first strike is, is the one clear example in Stargate for uh, declaring war. Because we weren't really in active conflict with the Replicators at that point. They had found out that we exist, that Atlantis existed. Uh, and... They came for retribution in, the, in early Season 3, remember? You brought up that beautiful point, they have wrath. No matter how machine they are, they are capable of enacting vengeance. Yeah, they were coming in uh, in Prodigy early in Season 3 to try and destroy Atlantis, and our team was able to stop them. But, you know, we go we go from early Season 3 to the end of Season 3, so somewhere, I don't know, 9 or 10 months. Uh, mm-hmm. And we find that they're building ships. So, yeah, I mean, it's this is the great thing about, about Stargate, and it's the great thing about, about talking about ethical questions like Just War, is... It's not entirely clear. If you see a fleet of ships being built, how far can you assume that that they're getting ready to come after you? And are you justified in taking that first strike? I like and that episode Elizabeth because Weir. Weir, yeah, she seems to be a little bit uneasy about this. And it's it it seems to me, not having seen the episode recently, it seems to me that that Weir uh, and maybe McKay and some of the others, it, it's not just that they're concerned that this is strategically a bad idea. 
that they're going to come after Atlantis. Uh, but they're concerned that, that ethically this may not be taking the first strike may not be the right thing to do. But they military decisions are out of their hands in this case. Uh, the IOA goes straight over them and says, this is something that we have to do. We're going to do it. And mm-hmm. Weir considers resigning. Yeah, and I got to say that there's this fantastic sequence, the, the longest visual effects sequence that they had done to that date where the Apollo drops out of hyperspace and fires this super weapon that, that then goes and, and splits off into multiple warheads and, and detonates on the, the surface of Asurus. Asurus. Say that ten times fast, the surface of Asurus. <laughs> and um, I, the first time I saw that, I was horrified. I was really? horrified uh, because it was so. Uh, the destruction was. I mean, I mean, it was it was Hiroshima times a million. If nothing else, in terms of uh, of a television programming, that was a very bold thing to do. And then, to my amazement, we drive the ball home ten episodes later, and we wipe out the entire planet. You and I have been continually browbeaten about this one because you know there are a lot of people who who think that if all the humanoid replicators were boxes on wheels we wouldn't pay them any consideration you know but the fact that so many of them were interested in ascension and trying to become more than what they were created to do mm-hmm. it just jars me and then we go in and we wipe them out and i think it was really compounded by the producers comments you know, uh, and and their responses to us when we raised this, they were much more interested in having a big bang than really dealing with the pesky moral issues that that take mm-hmm. up loads of screen time. And I think the reason for that, if I may speculate uh, and attempt to enter the minds of the writers, is because the world that we are portraying here, uh, at least since the exit of Neom, or maybe the reprogramming of Neom in Prodigy, when, when Oberoth sort of takes control of him again. And the loss of that group of replicators who were, were trying to ascend, who didn't follow Oberoth's policies. Since we lost that group, it seems like the writers were portraying the replicators very much in black and white terms, very binary. So the replicators are either a threat or they're not. They're either evil or they're not. And they got to a point where it was okay to destroy the entire race because the entire race was evil. And they had their replicators, so they have this, this shared consciousness, and Oberoth has this influence over them, and he can, if you, if you stray too far and disagree with him, then he can rewrite you. Yeah, and you know, also they, they wanted an action-packed hour, and there's nothing wrong with that. They wanted a big uh, arc for the first half of the season, and they got it, you know? And when it comes down to it, Atlantis is an action show. Always mm-hmm. was. And this is a fine example of that. I think Be All My Sins is one of the greatest episodes of Atlantis. And it is one of the most controversial, in my opinion, as well. There are some great character moments, but man, oh, man, I was just not comfortable with how it ended. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I wasn't. They they didn't slow down to deal with that ethical problem. We talked in our previous podcast. They didn't slow down to deal with the, the ethical issues surrounding Fran. And using Fran, who is basically a good replicator for that purpose, genocidal purpose. Or if nothing else, a neutral replicator. We've got two issues here. We've got what standard or threshold do you have to meet in order to be justified in going to war? And then the other side of this is is how do you conduct a war in a just manner? Uh, And this is the principle of juice in bello. 
the laws of war, or what are the right ways to conduct a war, what can you do and what can you not do. Um, there's obviously a big international debate right now about torture. If you are at war, is it okay to torture your captives to gain information? Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of this larger discussion. So, uh, for the most part, I think that's where we are operating in Stargate. Uh, we are in open hostilities with the Goa'uld. We're in open hostilities throughout the series with the Wraith. And uh, with the exception, I would say, of maybe this, this Season 3 period. Also with the Replicators. Certainly by Season 4, we're in open hostilities with the Replicators. Mm -hmm. Television is all about conflict, so it has to be in there. We asked you guys this question uh, this past week. You know, is there, a, is there ever a reason for a just war in Stargate? Do you think it exists? Do you think it's, do you think it's valid? Mac Jackson says, I think it comes down to the threat presented. I have always felt that the SGC was correct in their way of fighting all the aliens and robots. It comes down to the ability to reason with the enemy versus the threat. If they want to destroy or take over the Earth, and you can't talk them out of it, then all the cards are off the table, and they must be wiped out by whatever means necessary to protect the Earth. Now, I, I assume when he, he says they must be wiped out, he specifically means the impending army and not the entire race. Well, that's my question. When you see the Replicator homeworld blow up, my first gut reaction was, is every single entity that lived on that planet an enemy combatant? So one of the principles of Jus and Bello is you do not target civilians, you do not target non-combatants. It is not okay. It is not acceptable. Uh, you do not target civilians. This, this has led to huge debates over things like the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. Is the U.S. justified in doing that when they know the huge uh, civilian collateral damage that's going to happen? Mm -hmm. um, in Stargate, is there any such thing as a replicator non-combatant? And you look at the existence of Neum's group, uh, which is apparently still around at the end of Be All My Sins. There's a ship full of them led by replicator Weir. So that kind of makes me want to say that no, the replicators are not just a monolithic evil and you can't necessarily assume that every member of yeah. the species, if, if you want to grant so far as to call them a species, call them a race, they're not all enemy combatants. There's also the element that I want to dabble in here really quick, I want to make notice of, with, which is advanced warning. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, mm. and I think two or three other cities, several days beforehand, leaflets were papered from the sky mm -hmm. in the respective language. Mm -hmm. saying that there is a very good chance that your city will be bombed in the next three days. If you want to survive, get out now. But in Be All My Sins, remember, it is specifically a surprise attack. They have no advance warning, and obviously, you know, they treat the replicators as one body. That's one of the most scary things, one of the most scary phrases, as far as I am concerned, is they're all the same, or they don't value life like we do. Very, very scary statements. Was that on the show? No, it wasn't. But oh that's the mindset. When you get the Wraith together and you get the Travelers together to wipe out the Replicator race, you're basically saying they're all the same. All they want to do is kill us because we've programmed them to kill. So let's all go and wipe them out and be rid of this problem. Yeah, and I don't buy it. I don't buy it for the replicators because you look at characters like Neum, uh, you look at characters like uh, the Jennifer Keller replicator that we met in this Mortal Coil, uh, who was part of that same movement. Uh, even if you can convince me that they're a technology, that they're not a sentient species, look at look at other races that we've gone to war with. Uh, is there any such thing as a 
good wraith. Well, what about uh, Aaliyah from Season two's Instinct? We are at war for years and years with the Gould. Is there any such thing as a good Gould? Well, what about Jonas's girlfriend from Season seven's Fallout? She was a Gould, she was not here. a Tok'ra. She was a spy for Ball, and she turned out to, to be a, a good person. Well, she, I mean, we hear her say so much for my empire. She had ambitions, but when it really came down to it, you know, uh, she set her ambitions aside. Mm. Um, I think the real salt in the wound for me is it's one thing to do something. It's, it's one thing to betray Fifth and promise to be his friend and promise to protect him and, and help him solve his base code problem. Mm-hmm. And then later have him come back and have there be a reckoning for what we've done. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to deliberately never address the issue again because we want to move on and because we don't think it's valid. The, there was, aside from Spoils of War, which was basically all about ZPMs and everything like that, dealing with the Wraith and the Replicators, there was never any fallout from the destruction of Asuras. And that was what really got to me because the, the writers or whoever decided it either didn't think about it or did not think it was worth pursuing mm-hmm. a storyline that continued to address what we had done. We just move on. Yeah, even even when the replicator survivors come back in Ghost in the Machine. It's not an issue. It's not an issue that we have we have obliterated their species. Atri says, I think that we should always look at things from the point of view of the characters. SG-1, for example, have the same moral standards that we do. So they have the same view of what is right and wrong. They thought it was wrong to poison ghouled worlds where thousands of Jaffa would die. I speak about the trust incident. What's What's the episode here? I think it's Endgame. It's Endgame, that's right. But would they have said the same if it was about the Replicators? Of course not. They're machines, and they're not redeemable like the Jaffa are. So morally wrong or not, we have to take them out. So that's that's Atri's first point. There's a couple more points here, but let's talk about this. Atri seems to think it's a given that that uh, you can take out Replicators, that, that they're not to be judged by the same standard as the Jaffa. He's a machine too, by the way. It's not a mechanical one. Atri goes on, In the end, it is a question of whether we are prepared to give up the fundamental principles on which our society is based in order to survive. But do we really have a choice? There's a morally wrong way to fight evil aliens, and of course there is such a thing as a just war. The real question should be if we can allow ourselves to hold onto our morals or if the price is too high. I think this is a great mm-hmm. point to bring up. This is a point that, that I hear many people making as we have brought up this replicator issue. The replicators are wiping out entire planets full of humans. Uh, do the ends justify the means? If, if it is a question of our survival or their survival, do yeah. we have the right to annihilate a species? Can we hold on to what makes human if we do this? Do we become our enemy in the process? Yeah, and this is this is a very live conversation, a very live debate in the United States and the international community right now. Uh, do we have the right to do whatever it takes in order to protect our people? Mm. I don't know if I have an answer for it. My inclination is to say no. I mean, when you bring in real-world issues like, like the torture issue right now, I've got to say no. It's, it's not worth crossing that ethical line. The ends do not justify the means. And we should be prepared to endure more hardship and go the hard route versus compromising what makes us who we are. If society allows it, 
then society gets what it deserves. What do you mean by that? If you let your standards fall, it's you it's you who did that. And you may think that everything's going to be sweet and rosy, but sooner or later, the pendulum's going to swing the other way, and you're going to have to put up with the decisions that you have made. Any action, any inaction, whatever you do, in this case, how you treat your enemies, is going to come back to haunt you. It's called karma. Did you become Hindu in between shows? <laughs> I think karma is a very real thing. I, I call it something else, but I think it, I think it can be a very real thing. And I don't think Atlantis' karma was right. I don't feel that they got sufficiently punched in the teeth after they did that. We just went along because this is an action show and because we have a a specific number of stories to tell. And we want them to be interesting stories. We don't want to bore the audience to death. Mm. We've got to move on. Especially in, in this climate and the way in which science fiction addresses real human issues. In, in the current political climate, ethical climate... I would love to see Stargate tackle some of those issues. Yes, Atlantis is an action show. Uh, I would love to see it, it address issues of fallout. You know, maybe it's it's the, the military or the IOA made a really tough call and decided to do this, decided mm-hmm. to to attack uh, Asurus preemptively, decided to blow mm-hmm. up Asurus, uh, decided to consider the entire uh, replicator species as an enemy as combatants what is the fallout from that decision mm-hmm. you know everyone's talking about there being a gay character on universe you know and this is this is the kind of debates that, that that's been going on in soap operas for years now you know so I, I i'm i'm not so interested in pursuing those kinds of issues whether or not there should be a gay character on universe so much as these kind of issues whether or not we should devote time to exploring whether or not we had cause to eliminate our enemies mm. that in my opinion is much more up Stargate's alley, yeah, as opposed to of, whether or not two women are going to kiss. Should there not. be a gay character on Universe? The more interesting question is: Should there be a character who is ethically thoughtful, who is ethically troubled by some of these decisions? I think that's much more important. For a lot of years, that was Daniel Jackson, and yes. I, I thought that early on in the first couple seasons of Atlantis, I thought that was Elizabeth Weir. Uh, and by first strike, you know, we're getting to the point where Elizabeth Weir is being written out of the show. Got the shaft. She was never replaced. That voice was never replaced in terms of, of asking those mm-hmm. tough questions. Characters who are actually bothered by these decisions. For whatever reason that that actress left, that that character was written out, that was a very important voice that I think Carter tried to be in replace of, but I was never a big fan of Sam mm-hmm. on Atlantis. I never saw her as playing that role, as having that voice. And maybe it was just the, the bag of stories for that year, but it didn't really... And then you get Woolsey who has been an IOA puppet for years. So, and we know how the IOA feel about it. And it just really changed the timbre of the show in that regard. Yeah, the IOA has always been very ends justify the means kind of kind of people. About uh, shirt and tie, he sent us a message. Yep, we have one voicemail. Let's listen to that. Hi, Darren and David. Shirt and tie here again in Ireland once more. And uh, This is a great question to ask of our heroes at Stargate Command and at our outpost in the Pegasus Galaxy. The Just War theory has two facets. The right to go to war, just ad bellum, and the right conduct within war, just in bello. Amongst the criteria for the right to go to war include just cause, comparative justice, legitimate authority, right intention, probability of success, last resort, and proportionality. If we examine the Stargate movie, then O'Neill's team could be interpreted as the aggressors using the nuclear bomb to kill Ra, thereby enabling the Goa'uld the right to go to war. 
This leads us to the rather quirky consequence that proportionality would suggest they're within their rights to send a nuclear bomb back at us. Not to sound all Kinsey about it, but when the war with the Gaul Uld was raging, it begged the question whether the military units being sent out of Cheyenne Mountain even had legitimate authority, or indeed probability of success. With regard to the right conduct within war, I would suggest that the Goa Uld certainly used every dirty trick in the book, from pain sticks to zetarks, from genetic manipulation to coaxing an asteroid towards Earth. Gotta love those guys for style. On the replicator front, again, one could argue that by bringing Reese back to the SGC and switching her on, we set in train a series of events culminating years later in Be All My Sins Remembered, albeit with her Pegasus Galaxy cousin replicators. Again, within the frame of the Just War theory, we defended ourselves in killing Reese, but also destroyed not just the replicator's leader, but their controller, or, if you will, their system of government. Does this lead us nicely again to proportional response and the Just War premise of the replicator's having the right to eliminate our leaders or systems of government. Certainly our behaviour in the replicator wars leaves a lot to be desired. Our treatment of 5 by SG-1 during the placement of the time dilation device doesn't bear close scrutiny. In the Pegasus galaxy, our willful freezing and thawing of Niam led to McKay tampering with their base code. Tampering with their base code sounds a lot like genetic manipulation. Nerdy, anyone? Indeed, the moral ambiguity shown by the Atlantis team under the frame of just war is staggering. Not only did they wake up the wraith, but they also played God by introducing the ill-fated retrovirus. Indeed, Shepard's own moral compass is in question in particular in Miller's Crossing, where he effectively convinces Henry Wallace to allow the wraith to feed on him. Surely the acts of war are directed at combatants and not towards non-combatants. It's a testament to the sublime writing and acclaimed acting of these storylines that the compelling drama leads us to follow what in real life might be considered morally ambiguous at best or morally reprehensible at worst. As a study model for just war, SG-1 Atlantis make for intriguing examination. I would also perhaps add that at the ending of war, our juice post-bellum could be examined, the execution of Balin continuing being a Nuremberg moment. Paul makes a great point here, moral ambiguity. If not for Atlantis, then I, I think at least for SG-1, that was always a big theme, moral ambiguity. And we talked about some of that last week, in our season four history podcast, there are some yeah, there great was episodes some that year, like Scorched Earth and the other side that that are moral ambiguity episodes. But see, the nice thing about SG One in that time period was they were always very good about generating cut and dry, pleasant solutions. That can only be interesting for so long. You can only have so many seasons of a show or of a franchise that go, "Oh, isn't that nice." And they fly away, and we all wave to them, and they go their, to their home world. I'm re- referring to Season 4, Scorched Earth, SG-1. That's only so interesting. Episodes like Be All My Sins and First Strike were much more interesting fundamentally in terms of the water cooler chit-chat afterwards. I wish that Weir would have resigned in First Strike. You mean before she was hurt? Before she got blowed up, I wish she yeah. would have made a big stink of it and resigned. And, yeah. and and actually pose that question and had that be a significant piece, if not the, the centerpiece, but a significant piece of the episode was that ethical question. And, you know, she's a diplomat and she's a negotiator uh, and she's definitely going to have opinions about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and those sorts of issues. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, she's a flower child. Come on. Yeah, I would have loved to see that. And then, you know, maybe she resigns and then she can't go back to Earth in the middle of a crisis. The, the city's under attack. So you can yeah. still follow through the same character yeah, arc exactly. and have her get hurt and have her become half-replicator. I hope that that scene was written 
But you know, even if it was, it got deleted, and it wasn't important enough to them. I want to say that this is the only instance out of 15 seasons of Stargate where I have had a problem with the decisions that mm -hmm. the producers have made in terms of crafting the outcome of a story. Mm. The replicators are the big one for me. And that's that's why I wanted to approach this discussion, you know. I mean, is is there such a thing as a just war? What responsibilities do we have to our enemies? And the mm -hmm. fact that, that we can, I mean, even though I wasn't satisfied with the outcome, I'm glad that we have the opportunity to address it here. This was really the only time where I said out loud, wow, I don't agree with you guys. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> and you know what? That's okay. Again, and I don't mind when they do it. I don't mind when they make those story choices. I just wish that we could stop and, and take a breath and have the characters have that discussion and that debate a little bit more than they do. I think that science fiction is such a great genre because it does special effects and awesome explosions and fight scenes and space battles and hot chicks and great-looking guys. It does them really well, but it also does poignant stories it asks hard questions it talks about who we are as human beings uh, who we have been who are we going to become and mm -hmm. um, that's that is science fiction at its best and it certainly is stargate at its best yeah there's definitely some watered down science fiction out there that the genre itself that's i mean that's that's what gene roddenberry wanted to do with it you know that's that's what he's done mm -hmm. so and if you need any proof that 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 kind of science fiction storytelling is on the radar of, of the Stargate writers, go and watch the end of 200. And exactly. you've, got, you've got the actor who plays Gorel the robot quoting Isaac Asimov, which is straight, pure Brad Wright. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever. To the blinder critics and philosophers of today but the core of science fiction its essence has become crucial to our salvation if we are to be saved at all we have a little bit more listener mail to get to thanks to everybody for writing in and calling in on this week's main topic uh, here's a couple more voicemails Hi, my name is Garrett. I'm calling from Overland Park, Kansas. And I just wanted to let you know that I check Hulu daily because I've been watching the Stargate and they just published season three on Hulu. And I just want to let you know, because since I have looked on your website and you have not noticed or published that season three has been published on Hulu. Thanks, Garrett. Everybody go check out Hulu.com. If you live in the United States, you can watch season three now. And season four will be along in a few weeks. Shawtalk writes in and says, Would it be possible to review future seasons, it's talking about our history podcasts, closer to their release on Hulu? I started watching SG-1 at season nine, and I'm using Hulu to get caught up on the old seasons. Being able to hear your discussion on the season close to the time that I watched it would be very interesting. Well, I specifically said that um, by the time season nine gets out, Stargate Universe is probably going to be airing. Uh, or pretty close to it, mm -hmm. and there's just no way that we're going to want to allocate some of our time to exploring SG-1 history at that point. So I suggest to Shot Talk and all those who are interested in following us and Hulu to put aside the main discussion topics for SG-1 history when we do release them and wait for Hulu to come out with that season. 
then watch that season of SG-1, and then seek out our history for that corresponding season, which will already be archived. You don't want to listen to it first, I don't think, because we basically do a rundown of all that happened that season, unless you've yeah. already seen the season. If you've seen the season, then you can then you can definitely start off with our SG-1 history for that season and not be spoiled. But if you've never seen it before, don't listen to us first. Yeah, that's a good idea. If you've never seen it before, you're watching it on Hulu, or if you haven't seen it in a long time and you're you're watching all the episodes through again on Hulu, set that podcast aside and come back to it when you're done. It's going in the archive. It's always going to be there. It's it's not dated. It's till the it's end of time. Timeless. And uh, do it then. Don't spoil your viewing. What we're trying to do is get through all ten seasons of SG-1 and hopefully Arc of Truth as well. We've already done Continuum before Universe premieres in October, which means we've got to keep up a pretty good clip in order to do that over the summer and the fall. If we release the Stargate History podcasts at the same time as Hulu released the new season, well, then you would have to watch all 22 episodes, and how long is it going to take you to get through 22 episodes? Yeah. So if you watch those over the course of two or three weeks, then, you know, suddenly we're now wanting to to podcast a month behind Hulu instead of a month ahead. Yeah, if you can hold off from listening to that specific podcast, then you will have ample time to watch, well, as long as Hulu has them up, you will have ample time to watch the episodes for that season and the time that you want to watch them, and then just come back and listen to the discussion. Plenty to listen to through the GateWorld podcast, and we definitely do not want to be the ones who spoiled you. Yeah, we have a big fat archive of all 45 episodes on the website at gateworld.net slash podcast. And what I'm going to do now that we've been using our off-season to do these series, the Stargate History series and the Philosophy of Stargate series, I'm going to break those out and have separate listings for them. So there'll be a spot you can go to and see all of the Stargate history all together. Hi, this is Kevin from Birmingham, Alabama. I listen to you guys on the podcast every week. Got a question for you uh, in regards to a season, I believe it was a season 9 episode, yeah, or 10, I can't remember. Uh, it was the one where we had the multiple realities and uh, uh, Dr. Frazier came back and we saw Martouf. If you remember at the end of that episode, the other Ben Browder or the other Cameron Mitchell told uh, our Mitchell that uh, when the time comes to choose the green one. So I never did see any payback or notice any payback on that. So I was going to get your guys' thoughts on it, if you could expound on it one episode. Was that ever picked up on? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Is that what you would call a red herring? I don't know. I guess that depends on if the writers ever intend to actually revisit it. We'll see you soon, Harry, says the Borg Queen. Oh, that's right. Thanks, everybody, for the voicemails. And if you want to call the show this next week and ask us a question or offer your thoughts on the listener question, that number is 616-712-1647. David. What are we talking about next week? June the 10th, Podcast 46. This is uh, my idea, uh, since Darren and I are big fans of uh, both franchises. We're going to put them up against each other and, uh, and compare them and contrast them. Stargate versus Star Trek. And we want you to participate as well, so Darren's cooked up a nice, pretty listener question to go along with it. Darren? This week's listener question is, what do Stargate and Star Trek have in common that you love? And in what ways do you think they are the most different? How they approach stories, how they approach characters, set dressing, location shooting. What is it that you are polarized on or that really sticks out for you? 
Now, if you have a particular favorite show you want to talk about on from either franchise, that's great. If you want to talk generally about the Stargate franchise versus the Star Trek franchise in all its incarnations, that's fine, too. Yeah, this is deliberately broad, so it's up for grabs. That's next week on June 10th, and on June 17th, we're back around to Stargate history. We're talking about SG-1 Season 5. And then on June 24th, we're going to discuss the overusage and underusage of characters in the Stargate franchise. Do you think Taylor had enough screen time? Do you think McKay ever shut up enough? It's a pretty early stage for this uh, discussion. I haven't formulated it very much in my head, but it's, I think, one that'll turn out to be very interesting. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks once again for tuning in. In this week's episode, we talked about Just War on Stargate. We also gave you a teeny tiny preview of our upcoming interview with actress Terrell Rothery. Look for that on the site in just a few days. And for links to everything we talked about today, head to GateWorld.net and look for the episode 45 show notes. Thanks so much to everyone who has given us feedback. To all you potential feedbackers out there, this one is for you. Please give us a call on the hotline, 616-712-1647. If you love us, if you hate us, let us know. Or uh, leave us a message on the podcast feedback thread. It is not preferred. We prefer that you call in. Uh, but you can definitely do that. And, of course, uh, the episode show notes, you can leave comments in there, and we'll be sure to read through them before the next episode airs. You can follow GateWorld on Twitter if you are not already. We are Twittering at twitter.com slash GateWorld. I looked today, and we're almost to 1,300 followers. 1,300? Really? Wow. That's pretty good. That's... Wow. I have I'm no surprised. idea how that compares to the rest of the world, but... Well, there you yeah, I, th- I think uh, Ashton Kutcher has the most. He surpassed CNN. Ashton so. Kutcher has a gazillion. Yeah, he has a lot. Five episodes away from 50. Yeah, we're going to have an episode 50 party, are we not? We are. We're bringing Tammy back. Yep, and I think that... Episode 50 is not only our 50-episode milestone, I think it's also going to be right around our one-year milestone, because we took yeah. a couple weeks off for Christmas. It's going to be just about in line. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go out and buy some uh, some hats and some, um, some noisemakers. I'm actually going to do that. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. <laughs>